Welcome back to the Darwinian Times, survival of the nimblest. I'm your host, Tanut Joshi, founder and CEO of Hilarity. With us today is Sam Cox, serial entrepreneur, renowned innovator, and recently group product manager at Google. Join us as we discuss his journey into and from Google and how he innovates during challenging times. We really hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, hello, hello. Good morning. And we have here our next series of podcasts, our esteemed guest, Mr. Sam Cox. So before we dive in, let me tell you a little bit about myself, Tanu Joshi, founder, CEO of Ularity. And we have Sam Cox, who leads a product team at Google. He's been a serial entrepreneur. You name it, he has done it. He's literally the most interesting man on the planet. Uh, I'll let Sam give his introduction in his own words, and then we can jump right into the next episode. Hi, Tanuj. Thank you very much for having me today. I am, uh, I'm flattered by the introduction. I am far from the most interesting man in the world, but thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. It's an honor. So, Sam, the first question that I want to jump into is your journey. You started off as, as entrepreneurship. I know that's something very close to your heart. Then you have worked at some tech startup in New York City. You've spent time at Google, probably the largest tech company in the world right now up there with Apple and now going to your new role. So talk to me a little bit about your journey. I think that the journey is always incredibly important. And I think that the first thing that I think about when I reflect on my journey has been how nonlinear it is. And I think that most people come into their working careers believing that they have to do what they studied or that they are confined to the choices available to them at that very moment. And for me, and a big part of my journey was that I did not believe that I was restrained by what I'd studied in college or uh, the choices I'd made before. So I think that the, the most important thing for me <clears throat> when I think about my journey has been the value of constantly learning along the way. I studied art history, Chinese and economics, but started my first tech company while I was in college. And that kind of surprised people in the classes I was in, but it managed to pay for college and most of an MBA. And when I got out of my MBA and was thinking about what I wanted to do for a living, I ended up going into banking, which was not the logical choice for an art history major, but I was following my nose and doing what I thought was interesting, what I thought would add value and what I wanted to learn about. And so that process of constant learning led me to found a machine learning company in 2008, which is kind of a crazy time to start something. That tech company that I founded ended up leading me towards digital media, where I got to be one of the first people to experiment with header tags, which if you're not in the media cognoscenti, doesn't mean anything, but it is something that you know in 2009, no one had heard of. And now in our market, it's all the rage and everyone thinks it's a, a new technology. But by becoming interested in the way that the media markets were structured, the beginning of real-time bidding, real, beginning of header bidding, I ended up going into ad tech. Um, that led me to a company that I joined as an SSP, worked for on behalf of publishers, and allowed me to keep experimenting. The technology and the story that we built together led to an acquisition by OpenX, which was a very exciting thing for me at the time. And then I went to the buy side of the business, and then I got poached by Google and I've just decided to depart Google. And so along this entire journey, I've had the ability to work with people who just amaze me and that I'm deeply interested in learning about. And so the process of learning took me from being an arts major, essentially, to working in the tech department and the engineering department at Google. When I first got to the company the size of Google, it's terrifying. Relying on the lessons that I'd learned as an entrepreneur 
really served me. And so one of the big things that I took through was the understanding that ecosystems are ecosystems. And when you are starting a company, you have kind of a couple different ecosystems that you're living in that you have to learn. You have to learn your business. You have to learn the business adjacencies because these are the people that you're selling into. These are the people that are going to be adding services or value to either side of your company. And if you're doing a venture-backed startup, you also have to learn the high-context society of investors. And investment and investors have nothing to do with your company and what your company does and the service it provides to its users and customers, but it is a necessary part of the funding and life cycle of a lot of startup companies. So what I took into Google was an understanding that to be successful in the startup world, you have to be able to quickly communicate your message and what you're doing. You have to be able to communicate why it's important to the customer. And just as much, you have to be able to communicate why it's important to the person that you're speaking to. You have to make sure that you can express what you do in terms that they're going to understand and value. If you can do that, you also then have to be very clear about what you want from them. So if you think about the investor conversation, you have to be able to explain what your company does, why it's important, why it's important to the customers and to the market that you're getting into, and what you want from that investor. I need this much money to these specific things, and I need it in this timeline. That clarity of communication and that empathy to be able to craft your message to best resonate with the person you're sitting across from is a skill that I think entrepreneurs invest in more seriously than most large company executives, people who have been at a large company for a very long time, but haven't gotten to the high level of the executive arena, generally focus on their job task. Now, when I leave Google and what I think I'm going to take away, um, it's a lot more understanding of the mechanics of operating at scale. There are very few companies and very few experiences in the world that scale the way that Google does, especially from a technical standpoint. And the issues and logistics that I ran into, I'd, I'd never kind of seen before. How do you launch a product when you have to have it translated into over 100 languages and you have to have support staff around the world? You know, I think it's the difference between being a pioneer and going out and chopping down the forest to make your first fort and establishing a market and establishing a beachhead. I think of entrepreneurship as very much that sort of business person who's willing to go out and do something new and take that risk and be out in the wilderness and the unknown and make that first very rough fortress. And then they hopefully they build out and make a town and then it maybe becomes a city. Very few of those things become metropolises. And if we could argue that Google or companies of that size are metropolises. Doing stuff at Google was much more like building the channel right? You still have a large project to do, still have a big vision and a big dream, and you are trying to create a large impact, but the amount of moving parts has grown exponentially. And if you're off by a few meters when you're building the channel, you're in deep trouble. And so the need for precision and accuracy goes up. That skill set is something that I think I had appreciated, but never truly appreciated the size and scale that I now had the pleasure to work in. Awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was very helpful. Just continuing that a little bit, like this is my mandatory work from home question or the one in the list. And I promise you, this is the only one, but you know, <laughs> places like Google are they're going to a new, very, very high impact job, much more high impact than even Google. Our jobs rely a bunch on innovation, right? And there's all of us now leading very competent engineering teams or product teams, or even business teams. We rely on innovation and it has taken an interesting form in the pandemic, right? Like we are all in our little 
homes and boxes and you know some of us have the privilege of seeing the sky on a daily basis some of us don't talk to me a little bit about what you think is required to breed the innovation at the same level as it was in January of 2020 so my son was born my second child oh. right at the beginning of the pandemic and that was a very crazy and wild time for me and my family I'm sure, um I'm sure but when everyone started working from home i called everyone on my team while i was on paternity leave and i asked them to do a few things and, and some of the words you mentioned i think are relevant so first and foremost i asked them to slow down and the reason why i asked them to slow down is that change is hard no one had been planning for this and so i asked them to please take 20% of their best working hours and to think about what it would take for themselves their family to be sustainable the reason why i did that was i think that there is a propensity especially amongst entrepreneurs and high performers at workplaces to try and be a hero you don't want the project to fail so you take up the slack you overexert and now that everyone was home there was no distraction there was no change you weren't leaving for the office you weren't shifting contexts and coming home people were overworking so by focusing at the beginning on sustainability my thinking was that as this pandemic kept going and i had a, a strong belief that this was going to be a long haul the team would be able to get back to finding an operating cadence and would be able to maintain that pace through the duration of the pandemic rather than overexerting themselves at the beginning burning out and then leaving right or making another decision that would be disruptive to the team or cause large amounts of historical knowledge or product knowledge to go away very quickly which would be very hard to recover from I think that focusing on that sustainability and then getting the equipment and things you need in order to be able to be effective on an ongoing basis and to maintain your pace and productivity or maybe even only have it drop a little bit was something that I knew I needed to have my team invest in very quickly and when we started doing surveys at work um about team and team satisfaction my team had a much higher satisfaction than the, the other teams that were even adjacent within my business unit that had not invested in sustainability at the beginning and my thinking is always this that i like cars and the thing that i hate doing is hitting the brakes because the brakes are expensive you've spent a lot of money to get the car going fast you hit the brakes you now you're wasting the gas money and you're spending money on brakes and then you have to spend gas money again to get back up to speed you never want your team to have to slow down right like once they get going once they start getting into the the new normal and the status quo then you want them to be able to really really drive hard and i think that the the last thing i'm going to say about what was important from work from home is take the time slow down to focus on the interpersonal the 5 to 10 minutes at the beginning of a one-on-one -on -one meeting to ask how someone is to see how they're doing to ask them what are they doing to take care of themselves really allows you to keep the human connection that is required for high powered teams and high performing teams it may seem like a waste of time so have an agenda for the meeting absolutely but part of that agenda should include some time to continue to create that human connection and without that human connection i think that people slow down they lose the free to core the the willingness to do something to help their colleague and they lose the context of people's humanity and in the end um, teams are based on people and you have to really make the effort to focus on the human 
when they're not there in front of you. And that really helps with morale. It helps, you know, if someone is in trouble or depressed or not working well, it's going to come out and then you're going to be able to help them. Whereas if you just pretend that everything is the way it was, you might have people that are really struggling and you as a manager are not going to be able to identify that and not be able to help. Then you again, go back to that risk of losing significant knowledge about your product, your customer, your business. And those things are really harder to replace now that we don't have offices and we don't have places to go where you can do cultural kind of onboarding, if you will, when you join a company. So it's a, it's a higher cost of switching or loss when you lose someone in a virtually onboarded environment or a virtual working environment. So, you know, focusing on sustainability right off the bat, I think that getting the things and making the changes as fast as possible to adjust to the new environment, focusing on empathy. And the last thing that I would say is, this is a weird one, but I think that the documentation of the process of innovation is really important. Innovation is not a random inspirational thing. Creativity is, in my opinion, not a random thing. Both of them are the result of process, creative process, innovative process, talking to customers, gathering data, sifting through requirements, looking at limitations, really defining the problem that you're trying to solve so that you've got a clear pathway to how you started and where you're going. And then documenting that so that the entire team from a remote standpoint can access that process and can review that process and find out where it went wrong. And you can explain decisions at scale. And decision quality um, is something that we focused on a lot at Google. Like how do you make a really high quality decision and how do you do so at scale at high velocity? And a lot of that comes down to documentation, communicability, the ability to look back and assess mistakes because it's clear about how you took that decision and the ability to have documented metrics on what you're expecting, what performance is, you know, what are indicators of good, okay, bad, should we revisit this decision? Having that documented because we don't have the luxury of being in the same room or walking in and all seeing the same whiteboard or the same mission statement or the same update metrics, you know, in the office, the things that you do as a business in order to help motivate employees become harder. And so having really good documentation of high quality decision-making and innovation process allows for the cadence and the spread of that knowledge, like the spread of innovation and the ability to communicate it and have everyone get in line and understand it and buy into it. It really requires a lot of good, thoughtful documentation and communication. So those would be the four things that I think in the new work from home environment that I focused on and I focused my team on and you know, and anything I go forward to do, because I don't think that we're going back, I'm going to keep bringing with me. Especially, I think the last one is very, very interesting for me, because I think that's sort of a revelation, right? Because you think that it might seem painful in the moment that, hey, I'm losing time documenting, and I'm doing all this, I could use my time better. But you're doing yourself and your teams a favor if you have a manual to innovation, right? And then you don't have to come up with it every time, right? There needs to be a manual. And the new person you, joining on board can read the manual. And you don't have to hit you don't have to hit the brakes. Yeah, exactly. Brakes right. So find your cruise control. Expensive. Yeah, exactly. And you want to you want to keep that pace, right? Because I don't yeah. think people people don't notice the kind of the flat and even. Um, as humans, we notice velocity, acceleration, deceleration. But if you go mm-hmm. from, you know, we've all seen this. You feel that when you get in a car and you and you hit the gas and you go get going fast and 
you feel the acceleration the entire time. But once you hit 100 miles an hour and you're just cruising at 100 miles an hour, you don't notice yep. you're going 100 miles an hour. It's not until you have to hit the brakes that you realize how fast you are going. Uh, and then you realize how much you've lost by slowing down. So exactly. the, 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 the know, maximum we have in sailing is slow is smooth and smooth yeah. is fast. And so nice, focusing nice. on smooth means you are focusing on speed. Yeah. Now, since you've thrown out a sailing, I'll throw out a nerdy analogy as well. So change in speed is acceleration. Change in acceleration in physics is a jerk. So I always say, don't be a jerk. <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit of a nerdy thing, but yes. You are, you, you are uh, such so, a nerd and I love it. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, in the true sense of the absolute physics, don't be a jerk, don't change the accelerating speed. All right, so you know, kind of taking it at the macro level a little bit, right? Like we've all seen some trends of like, you know, the world's going digital, but what are you seeing as our top, top, trend from where you are now you've seen like trillions of data points and you've been an entrepreneur in the 2008 era and you've kind of now lived through two cycles of this basically and as a business person you know in one or two points what is the way you see that the world has changed for good now it's a good question i think that i'm going to answer it by providing you some of the kind of principles and things that i look at when i look at environments that are changing so first and foremost, I believe that the greatest impediment to change is the soft comfort of the status quo. And events like we're going through today change the status quo. And so I look and say, well, what things are going to accelerate as a result of this new status quo? And so I look at what I'm doing differently, right? I'm using contactless payments in a way that I never did before. And I'm usually a pretty good early adopter but had never really had the necessity nor the impetus to use my Apple Pay. I just take out my credit card and that seemed to work just fine. But uh, I found that I've stopped, stopped carrying a wallet, which is almost crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, there are times when I've not had my wallet in my pocket for over a week. And yep. looking at like what in your life has changed and what actions you are taking that are different, I think is a really good indicator of what the trends are probably going to be. And I think a lot of us spend a lot of time looking at macro trends in kind of the Keynesian sense. And I don't believe in the invisible hand of the market. I think that's horseshit. I look at Austrian economics. And so that's like, what are the incentives of the individual? Because their own personal incentives and not the ones given to them by their boss or something like that are gonna have a much bigger impact on their behavior and will actually define the system more than any systemic design will define their incentive and have them respond to it, right? So looking at the things that are changing for the people in your life, for yourself, is the greatest way to spot what trends we're all going through. And you'll see those in the financial numbers, right? Mm -hmm. You've seen deliveries go up. I think that you're seeing restaurants have declined. I don't know what's going to happen to restaurants when this all comes back mm -hmm. um, because people's behavior is going to be so massively condition to a new status quo, mm -hmm. I definitely know that people are not going back to offices. You yep. know, I think that offices are going to become a two-day-a-week necessity for key customer engagement, yep. but I don't think they're going to be necessary for day-to-day -day work. I think that you're going to see them as gathering points for conferences or for you know, scaled communication, but I don't think that they're going to have the same centrality in our lives. And you know, I think that anything that has to do with supporting work from home is going to explode. Yep. You know, so those are 
those are just some of the things I'm seeing because I'm seeing my own behaviors change and I'm trying to be you know, an observer of other people's behavior and I'm seeing those same patterns there. I do think that we're going to see a massive amount of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I'm kind of, I'm dying to know what the next billion dollar businesses are that are going to be started out of this pandemic, but I don't think they're going to be social. I think that in the physical sense, a friend of mine is working on a company called Nowhere. And what Nowhere does is it's like a social environment where as you move through this virtual environment and get closer to other people, you start to hear them more. You can pick up side conversations. It facilitates almost a party-like atmosphere in an online setup, which you know you can think of as how would you do network conferencing, right? It's You're not going mm-hmm. from, hop, from Zoom to Zoom, but how do you migrate through a virtual room full of Zooms? Yep. So I think that it's going to be fascinating to see what businesses come out, but I think that the cost of starting a business after this is going to go significantly down as workers start to use their own personal capital, their homes, their computers, their own phones, and things like that to support their working environment, which means that a company is not going to have to have the same kind of T&E expenditure, office expenditure, you know, and those are those are significant line items, especially with regards to salespeople and relationship sales. I also think you're going to see a growth of more technical and value sales as opposed to relationship sales, um, because it is harder at present to create new relationships through virtual engagements. Now, maybe companies like Nowhere and other people who are investing are going to solve that, but it's just the, hey, buddy, do me a solid is going to go away as people, I think, become much more, well, why is this good for me? What am I doing? And the cost of those sales, I think, is going to be uh, much lower, but you're really going to have to work on your product, your product market fit, your differentiators, and your customer value proposition. And when I say customer value proposition, not just the value proposition to their company, but to the value proposition to them as individuals who are making the company's buying decision through a computer on a screen or a phone call like we're doing now. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. So no, no, just on that point, for us as Ularity, right, we, when we started growing into the franchise space and other multi-location spaces, we didn't have the, the kind of industry history there. But now suddenly after the pandemic, uh, the value of a, a low-cost SaaS platform is so high that we don't need that anymore. We, like our sales cycles have come down by 40 to 60% just because it's a value sale now and it's not a relationship sale anymore. So that definitely is true. And, you know, I I completely agree with you on the trends lie in front of your eyes. It's not some macro trends that you need to worry about. I I was reading uh, Warren Buffet's biography, one one of the people yesterday night, and the initial stocks that he picked, he just went to five of his friends' house and he looked at the products they were using. And whatever was the most common thing, he started accumulating those stocks. And that's still how I invest. That's actually yeah, how, it, like, I, yeah. I bought Google at around the IPO because I was using the search engine. When I wanted an iPhone, that, I bought Apple stock. Yeah. When I started realizing that the vast majority of my purchases were being made through companies like Amazon, I bought a ton of Amazon stock going back to the Austrian economics and the individual incentives, why are you using it? It's easier for me. Okay. It's easier for me. It's probably easier for a whole lot of other people. You know, home runs are not the way to win a baseball game, right? They're random. They don't happen very frequently. Lots of singles is the way you win a baseball game. So if you think about your own self as, a, as part of a trend, if you're using something and you're using it for good reasons, my guess is there are a lot of other people who are doing the same thing and 
that's probably a stock I want to own. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm with you. So yeah, so there's no silver bullet here. Yeah. So just in just keeping check of time, and I'm, you know, I wanted to talk to you about prioritization a little bit, because we all, you know, some some executives are listening to this, I'm sure eight priorities cross their desk every day. And it's a myth, I think that Google has infinite amount of resources, and they don't have to prioritize. I'm pretty sure Google has to prioritize the same way that everybody else does. It's the scale is a little different. But yes, they have, they have to choose 200 things out of 800, we might have to choose two out of eight, right, the ratio still remain the same. So talk to me a little bit about entrepreneur days, hyper prioritization, Google, just the scales different, or the ratios are still the same, a few things come at your desk, you have to choose what to do. Is there Sam Cox framework or the way Sam Cox thinks about how I should pick something over the other? A framework I came up with very early in my career for machine learning is something that has actually stood the test of time uh, in every company I've ever worked at, including Google, which I think is a testament to the, the, the fact that things you learn as an entrepreneur can work at large scale if they're thoughtful and, and well-crafted. And then so the story behind this is that we were doing machine learning to help make classifiers. And a classifier is something that if you get an image classifier, you want to create software that can look at a photo that's never seen before and tell you, say, I'm Santa Claus. I'm looking for Santa Claus. So I build, I train the computer to recognize Santa Claus. And then I go and I run a whole lot of tests to see if it can recognize Santa Claus. And there you go. And we had limited resources and we're trying to figure out, you know, what should we do and what's important? And so... We came up with a framework that we call VVDS, which is volume, value, difficulty, and significance. And uh, what is, why did we do this, right? So volume value is pretty easy. Like how many of these things you know, can I sell? Uh, for how much can I sell them, right? Uh, you're just trying to get a sense of your market sizing and potential revenue. So let's continue the Santa Claus example, right? Like how many Santa Clauses are there in potentially in a pile of unstructured images? And how much is it worth every time I find one? Because that gives me the economic value of the classifier. And then I looked at it and said, well, how hard is it to make a, a Santa Claus classifier? Is it like uh, opening the door or is it like landing on the moon, right? And then how significant? Like, is this something that I'm going to use once? Is this something that I'm going to get a lot of repeat value out of? And that, you know, applied to a different thing. And the neat part about frameworks is they should be able to have uses in environments where you've never seen before or never applied them before, right? So when making a decision about entering new markets, one of the problems that you see a lot in the innovator's dilemma is, you know, you've got a huge uh, revenue stream in the United States, you've got customer feature requests, you've got, you know, a market pace to keep up with. And so because that is arguably, let's say your biggest market, and you want to go and enter into China, right? If you have no revenue in China, no customers in China, or just a few, the size of that business is it's not going to justify ignoring priorities that are related to your U.S. business, right? And so if you think about it, you can rebalance these things by saying, well, how many and how much, right? So what's the market size of China? What's the market size of the United States? You know, how big is this opportunity or this feature that I'm trying to define, you know, and I need a different feature for the U.S. as I do for China. So I'm trying to choose between the two of them. Um, how much is each one worth in real dollars, right? And then we, you, know, you can go to engineering and say, how hard is this to do? And that gives you a multiplier to be able to say like that financial yeah. value is somehow you know, is, is multiplied by this difficulty matrix, right? And if it's really hard, that's yep. going to make the financial value go down. And if it's really easy, that'll probably make it go up because you're going to capture it quickly. And then, well, how significant? And this is, the ch- this is the interesting and tricky part, but you're saying, 
if I think that China is where I'm going to grow and where the where the market is going, or Wayne Gretzky says where the puck is going, right? I need to yeah. make sure that I'm comparing apples for apples. And so if I think that China is really the future of my company, well, then I need to find a way to create equivalence between a US dollar and a, and a Chinese dollar opportunity, because they're not going to be the same size based on my existing business sizes, right? So I'm going to multiply every dollar in China by 10, because it's strategically 10 times more important than the United States, because it's the future and the growth. So I'm willing to sacrifice some stuff in the United States in order to achieve market entry and, and getting to scale and what I believe the future is. And so this helps to balance some competing priorities or compare notionally apples and oranges. And is one way that I try and resolve the innovator's dilemma, right? And so that helps you when I create my list and you know I do everything on a list. You kind of kind of say, okay, what are my priorities? And by going through a process of defining priorities and so you can involve like how many customers have asked, how big are those customers, how strategic are those customers. So you can see this framework continues to apply and create a force ranking. And mm -hmm. one thing at Google that I really appreciated is this idea of you have your OKRs and you'd rather get seven out of 10 done really well than kind of get to 80% completion on all 10. Because 80% in my mind is binary. That's called not done. 99% is not done. And it's either done or not done. And so I'd rather get my top seven things done and get them done well than get all 10 partially there and really have accomplished nothing in that sprint cycle, that development cycle, whatever it may be. This process, having everything have a force rank next to it, it goes from being a list to a priority list. If you think you have a priority list and these things are not numbered, you actually just have a list. And that means you don't know what's important. And it's really, I think, critical in business to know what is the most important. And the reason for that is as you go through the process of executing on your top 10 most high priority things, you know, or strategic initiatives or whatever your business might be, knowing if you're behind on number one, first thing you're going to do is pull resources from number 10. Keep going a little further and you're behind on number one, you're going to pull resources from number nine. And if, if you only get the number one thing on your priority list done, that's not a bad outcome, but rather than getting emotional about the decision to defund one of your other lower value priorities, you will make a bad decision because people suffer from loss aversion and feel upset because they've been investing in something. And now they've got to tell that team that we're going to stop, pull your resources, and you've got to pile on to the thing that's number one on the list. And it's churn friction. But if the entire team buys into that list, right? And the entire team knows that we're here to get one through seven done a hundred percent and yep. everything after that is gravy and that we are going to make choices if necessary. And they agree with the structure of that decision-making, which is we are going to defund the lower priority things in order to make sure we accomplish what is our most important thing. You don't have the team churn that and the emotional churn that you would have if you all of a sudden just showed up one day as a CEO and said, we've got we to stop doing that thing that's number 10 and we're going to do everything on number one. And if that's never been communicated, it is really jarring for teams. So yeah, you, exactly. you want to avoid that by getting this process of agreed upon priorities and agreed upon methodology of what you're going to do. If you're behind on high priority, you're going to abandon lower priority. Uh, and you're going to do that systematically. So it reduces a lot of that churn. The other, there's a few other things that I look for when I'm making a prioritization decision. Is the decision taken reversible? Meaning yep. if I do this, do I get a chance to go back through the door the other way or not? And if it's yep. a reversible decision, that's a really easy thing. Do it, right? 
if it's a not reversible decision, I'm going to take a lot longer to analyze it and make sure I'm making a high quality decision. And so high quality decisions for me, I always wanna have anyone present me with three options, the do nothing, the do everything, and then what's the, or, you know, what's their recommendation? It could be the do everything, but what's the middle ground? Like what's, where's the compromise? And then explain to me why you're choosing or why I should choose as an executive one of these priorities. The last thing I look at is velocity, right? We talked before about hitting the brakes and that you know humans are good at noticing acceleration, but not speed, right? So I look yeah. at acceleration. If, uh, if, if I have two things that are of equal importance on all metrics that are germane to me and my business, I then will make a decision about which one to address first based on the velocity of the thing that's moving faster. Because the thing that's moving faster, you know, is going to demand more attention. And you can think about that like if I have to make a choice right now between going out with a friend that I see pretty often or hanging out with my children who are very young, I'm going to hang out with my children who are very young because they're going through a one-way door at a high speed and I'm never going to get time to have a, you know, time with my kids about 10 months. It's a reversibility thing, right? Like, as you said, basically, it's an irreversible thing in time, right? So, yeah. Yeah, children I, I, are I, high velocity, non-reversible. Reversible. <laughs> yeah. no, so, I think the, yeah, no, you know, you're absolutely right. It's, it's one of those things, right? So, what I would encourage the listeners here, and especially who are having competing priorities is, Sam and I talked about this VVDS framework maybe a decade ago. It's important to have this VVDS framework, but what is more important is to get your framework, right? And it should be a framework which has different modalities in it. As you said, you have volume, value, difficulty, significance, reversibility, velocity. It's important to get a framework and it should be a little more complex than revenue, right? So get your framework. And make a list and number it. I think that's really critical. Make a list and number it because then to the point of documentation, everyone can agree on it. So it's not emotional, right? Yeah. I know I'm with you. I'm with you. I think it should be a non-emotional framework leading in a clear list of priorities numbered, right? Yep. You don't put an emotional column in, in your frame. All right. We're almost to the end of this couple of last questions. Although the job market is horrible and, and, you know, and great sadness there that so many of our friends and peers and everybody are looking for work, but talk to me a little bit about in your new role, or if you're starting a business, you would have hired peers, right? Or stakeholders who have as much stake in this as you do in your next venture. How does Sam Cox hire? And I'm not talking about hiring team members to do specific engineering tasks or something. I'm talking more about it from an entrepreneur perspective of a a bunch of our viewers would be looking to get partners in their business, right? Get like their C-level executives, the person that can change their business. So that's the angle of the question here of somebody you know who's very, very critical and can make or break the business, the partnership will take a personal toll on you if it doesn't go right. How would you approach that? Because although the job market is slowing, a lot of strategic hiring is happening and you are a part of it, right? Like you're changing roles from Google to even a bigger organization than Google. Um, yeah. So well, yeah. We have, and I and I, I haven't disclosed where I'm going yet, but it's a place I'm excited to go. And you know, hiring is going to be a big part of what I'm going to do. And I can tell you that as an entrepreneur and as an executive, I spend a lot of time being self-critical and self-analytical. I think that work is fungible, meaning that it's not something that is as linear as I think we often think it is. And that means to me that teams have to be built around that concept of fungibility. 
right? So if you're a CEO and your superpowers are strategy, customer insight, long view, and you know something like that, then you're probably going to want to hire people who have superpowers that are complementary. Like you don't go and hire people who are exactly like you. I am keenly aware of the fact that I have a lot of failings and limitations in my abilities as an executive, as a businessman, in anything. And I'm also aware of what I do well. And so I try and find people that are complementary. So do that, you have to say, okay, what am I good at? What am I not good at? What are the roles that I'm hiring for? What am I scoping them to do? Because you always want to make sure that each person on your team has a clear mandate, a clear objective, right? You don't want to hire a change agent and not let everyone else in the company know that they've been hired to drive change, right? Because yeah. that change agent's going to come in and get frustrated and the rest mm-hmm. of the team's not going to understand why this person is interrogating every decision and every choice they've made and is trying to shake things up. So you have to have clear vision as to what you're trying to achieve, what you want from this individual and how that is going to work into the greater whole. And so let's talk about technical hiring, right? If you have a product mm-hmm. manager who has a master's degree in computer science and is extremely technical, you're probably going to, and maybe has some good vision, but maybe not as great strategy, you're going to want to hire an engineering lead to pair them with that is technical, but doesn't have to be the craziest, most technical engineer, but maybe you want to pair them with an engineer that has a bit more strategic vision, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a PM who's really good at organizational and execution, pair them with a more gregarious engineer who can talk to customers with them, right? So that balancing and thinking about how you want to construct a team and making it so that the individuals inside of your organization are able to leverage their superpowers mm-hmm. and that the other people on the team are complementary with their superpowers and augment their deficiencies because you know everyone being perfect is impossible. Yep. And if you find a lot of people that are all identical, you're probably not going to have the outcomes you want. And I see a lot of, especially in technology um, with diversity hiring, which I love. My worry is, is that I think some people look and they get diversity of background and gender and all those sorts of things, but they don't get diversity of thought or diversity of skill or diversity of methodology. So they're not really building a team that has complementary skill sets, which allows them to all go a lot faster than they would if they were all the same. So I really do try and look at the whole person. I try and think about where they fit, what I want from them, what I'm asking them to do, what their superpowers are, and how I can, if I'm going to hire a really senior leader, I'm going to staff around them. Because if I've made that investment in that senior leader, because some of their superpowers are so exceptional, it would be a fool's errand to not then staff around them to augment their weaknesses, support their weaknesses, and make sure that they're not going to fail because I funded the wrong kind of team around them. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head there. A couple of points, right? If you are running meetings where your ideas are not getting challenged, it's time to have a hard think about that because ideas are to be challenged by you and your team to have the best idea come forward. And secondly, I think we at Ularity have come up with a framework. I'd love to know your thoughts on it. It's called, you know, the SI framework. It's, it's a little bit of an oxymoron, the S-I-G-H framework. And we try to evaluate every senior candidate that walks through the door for interview on four things. First of all, are they an SME on the scale, right? 
Like you cannot hire for an engineering role somebody who has tangentially done engineering five years ago and who does not really understand the value of coding or the, the, the intricacies of it. Now, they might not be doing it on a day-to-day basis now, but they need to understand. So SME is one, right? Integrity, right? This is really important, right? So you, you have to design your interview process in a way that you check on the integrity of a person. You ask them questions, right? Like when was the last time you did something, even though it led a loss in revenue, but you came out as the better person there, right? Or the morally right person. SME, integrity, grit. Right? Grit is really important because there are plenty of smart people out there, but there are even more out there who would try an idea. It would be a brilliant idea. It doesn't work. They don't know how to get up and go. And last is hard work, right? Like the plain good old hard work. Like you should ask them that when were they at a thing for a long enough time? So we have designed our questions in a way that it follows the SME, integrity, grit, hard work framework. If somebody has a good enough score on all those four things, they're a good hire, right? So that's ours, but yeah. That's, a, that's a really cool framework. I might steal some of that. Um, (laughs) I I also try and say, is this person better than more than half of the people that I'm looking at for this role? Like, are they really at the top of these things? You know, are they going to fit and not fit in terms of, are they going to be my friend, but are they going to succeed in the mandate that they're given? I'm a hundred percent with you. I think, you know, our job is to hire the right team and the team will keep the customers happy. We keep a happy team. The team keeps the customers happy. All right. Last question. And then we are at the end of this, uh, taking it a little bit lighter. You have a newborn son, a gorgeous daughter. You're living in upstate with a happy family, two dogs, but talk to me a little bit about what's personally keeping you sane. Like, you know, are you reading something, doing anything differently than what you were doing in late 2019, early 20? that has said, this is what I've changed in my daily routine a little bit because the times are hard, right? Like all of us are struggling. We're all staring the screen a lot longer than we were. You might have answered that question in the early part. You get the basics right, get the fundamentals right. But yeah, anything as parting views on this? From a principal's perspective, there's no difference between my private life and my work life, right? Like I look at things in the same way. I make decisions in the same way. Um, I feel like practice makes perfect. So like, why would I create all these great kind of ways of doing things at work and then not apply them at home? So I'm spending a lot of time with my kids. In the beginning part of the pandemic, my job was to make sure that my wife and children didn't realize there was a pandemic. And when I had my son, my job was to make sure that my wife could get sleep, could be happy and could get back to feeling normal as fast as possible, which was really hard in the middle of a pandemic. Anyway, because, you know, she's just been pregnant, it's nine months of giving up your body and now she's breastfeeding and that's, you know, another year. And then you've got little kids and they're just hard, right? So there's a lot of sacrifices that she has to make that just I cannot do. So I try and make sure that I take every other sacrifice and I'm going to take that hit. And so we moved up to a farm. So I think the thing that's changed in my life is that we live in Brooklyn. I've been used to commuting and uh, we moved up to our farm. And so <laughs> I've been spending a lot more time at the farm than I would have otherwise. And that's been great. We've owned it for less than two years. So and we've got a lot of work to do. So it's just given me more perspective and more understanding of the pace and meter and like daily changes. And I think that, you know, that has been the thing that I've, other than, you know, focusing on my family, that has been a great joy in terms of having another thing that I've been able to do and walking to my office through the farm. And, yeah. you know, I think really the thing that I've done a lot is that, I made sure that we made choices to avail ourselves of activities that were not dependent on other people. So 
rather than regretting that we can't go out to dinner or really going, man, I want to go to a restaurant. How can I make it so that I don't have that FOMO, right? So that's been a big, a a big investment because, you know, rather than we're not going on vacation. So I put more money into the farm so that my daughter would have a beach and would be able to play in the sand and we could pretend we went on vacation. And you know, the books I've been reading, this is going to sound incredibly nerdy, but I've been reading a lot on permaculture and specifically on fluvial geomorphology, which is that how do you use water in order to change environments? I've been reading textbooks on fluvial geomorphology by a guy named Rosgen. And it's been neat because we have rivers and we have water that runs through the property. And so trying to figure out how to use water to the advantage so I don't have to use machinery and can kind of restore an environment that needs some work using water as a tool. And I think that's about the nerdiest thing I've ever (laughs) said in public, but yeah. I wouldn't have expected nothing. I would have not (laughs) expected anything other than that. But no, that's awesome. No, that's awesome. No, I think that you you bring up an interesting point and we'll wrap it up here, which is that all the things that I personally saw as probably in 2019 vanity are important, right? Like if I wanted a new coffee maker, for example, and, and of course, like in the limit of my financial stretches, I can do it, right? Now is the time. It is important that you wake up and you're going to see the same room and the same coffee table and the same bed every day. It is important that when you wake up, you are not in a bad mood. So things that were vanity are suddenly the part which is important now, right? I mean, I got myself a new keyboard. And do I need a new keyboard? Probably not. But if it helps me perform like 1% better at work, it's worth it. It's important to change the little things, right? Like those things suddenly matter now. So identifying those and upgrading them is important more than ever now, in my opinion. I completely agree. All right. Then, well, this is the end of it. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been an honor. And Thank you very much. It's been a privilege. And for, the, or for everybody, Ularity is the world's easiest and most cost-effective marketing platform for multi-location distributed systems. You can give us a ping at sales at ularity.com. Go to our website, www.ularity.com. And again, if any questions, I will leave it in the description of the podcast. Reach out to us. We're happy to answer any questions. And we'll relay those questions to Sam as well if you have any specific product questions. But yeah, thank you again, Sam. And enjoy the rest of your day then. Thank you. Thank you, Tanush. You too. Bye. Thanks all for listening for today's podcast, The Darwinian Times Survival of the Nimblest. If you haven't checked out Ularity, check us out. We are the marketing infrastructure for the internet. We power brands to be able to use paid marketing centrally and distributed through one easy-to-use paid tool. Check us out at Ularity.com, E-U-L-E-R-I-T-Y.com. And tune in for the next episode of The Darwinian Times. Thanks all.